Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. I frequently hear from parents struggling with their child's college application process. The range of their emotions can be anywhere from anxious to utter heartbreak. Yet, does getting the golden ticket to the top university mean a good outcome for everyone? What do we need to know about the realities of what we are gunning for? And what are the myths and realities of the process as well as the long-term outcomes? I'm so glad to have had this conversation you'll get to hear with former Stanford University admissions officer, Dr. Irina Smith. She is the author of a new book called The Golden Ticket, a life in college admissions essays, and it will help anyone going through the college admission process. Irina is currently working as a college admissions counselor and her book is a total treasure. She generously shares her wisdom gleaned from spending countless hours considering the applications and essays of thousands of students, and she now assists students through the college application process itself. Anyone going through this process should read her book. Forbes said that her book can serve as a potential antidote to the fevered belief that being admitted to an elite college will spell the difference between a successful life versus a doomed future. I couldn't agree more. So listen in as Irina and I talk about things you need to know about the college admission process and beyond. Dr. Irina Smith, a wholehearted welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so great. I was telling my wife that you are the first person whose LinkedIn posts I fell in love with. And lo and behold, your writing of The Golden Ticket, which is so timely for so many of us, is beautifully written. I would describe it as having a cup of coffee with your best friend who also happens to be brilliant. And I just love the way you really take so much of the ouch out of what is often a very painful process to us parents, something I hear about all the time in my office. And I'm so grateful to have met you through your brilliant husband, who is a psychiatrist with whom I've coordinated care. And just, it's just great to be with you today. Well, I'm really happy to be here. And when you publish a book, you never know how it's going to land in the world. And so to hear things like that is very heartening. Thank you. Yeah. And it's no surprise that you got your doctorate in comparative literature, that you are a lover of the letter. And I guess I'm going to go with the first piece. You have seen how the sausage is made. You've seen the behind the scenes at Stanford, one of the most sought after schools. What are some of the myths and what are some of the realities as an admissions officer that we might be kind of surprised by? Probably the biggest myth that I would identify is when I worked at Stanford, eons ago, their admit rate was a positively generous 12.5%. It is now under 4%. But even 12.5% is not great. It means that 87.5% of the applicants are going to be rejected. And most of them are quite qualified. I think the myth is that when people look at those numbers, they think, why not me? 
And the truth is, that's not what admissions officers are looking to do. They're not looking to admit people. They are looking to, as efficiently as possible, throw out applicants, sometimes for real or imaginary teeny tiny snags or slights, and often for nothing. Just because when you have, as we did in this past admission cycle, 57,000 applicants for 2,100 spots, the math is such that most of those students are going to be brutally disappointed. So I don't mean to say don't apply to Stanford, but I do mean to say, think about the emotional toll that it will take on you to write the application, to live the kind of life that is quote unquote Stanford worthy, only to very overwhelmingly likely be rejected at the end. And I think that the palpable need of the people whose applications I read to be admitted is not necessarily an asset. It comes across as clutching and desperate and a little bit stalkerish and Wanting to go to Stanford more than anything in the world is not necessarily a winning characteristic. That's just a good point that talking about the me, 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 I want to get in here is not going to be tantamount to being clickbait for Stanford on the other end. That's really important. One of the other things that you bring up in your book so beautifully is that in 1983, the US News and World Report came up with a ranking system that has maybe not been such a great thing for the American public by ranking universities. And one of the things that we as parents on this kind of pukey, nauseating ride as our children apply for college and we have no control over their future happiness or our perceptions of our future happiness, which may be more on the nose for how I imagine you might answer this. I'm wondering just exactly how important it is that we get into the college of our dreams in terms of our future opportunities? And what do you say to a parent who may be crestfallen that their child did not get in? Crestfallen is actually a nice word for how <laughs> some parents feel. I have had parents describe themselves as, and these are direct quotes, devastated, heartbroken, adjectives that have more to do with loss of life or severe setbacks that are to me, more serious or injurious than not getting into a school with a 4% admit rate. And the data is out there and nobody wants to look at it that going to Stanford or going to another highly sought after school does not actually guarantee fulfillment, happiness, and professional success. Yes, there is networking. Yes, you will be surrounded by other incredibly accomplished people. But if you have given up four years of your adolescence in order to try to be among them, you're never getting those four years back. And when you do end up at Stanford or Harvard or Yale or Princeton or any of those other schools, you will now be surrounded by other people who are in the top 2% of their graduating class who have also, in some cases, given up four years of their adolescence. And the stakes for whom are much higher. And I actually, not to name drop, but I had a lovely coffee with Dr. Ann Bogan yesterday, who you may know, she's a psychiatrist as well. And she said that she has lost count of the number of leave of absence forms that she has filled out for Stanford students who 
have found themselves just unable to keep up with four more years of stress and competition now at a much higher level. So you have to start asking yourself, what exactly is the return on investment? If your child goes to a less expensive, less glamorous school, sure, your bragging rights will take a blow in April or May of your child's senior year. But is that really worse than having your child come home freshman or sophomore year in disarray and crisis? I would say maybe not. And the life opportunity cost of losing four years of one's adolescence that they are never going to get back just for this outcome that so many single-minded parents want so badly. And one of the things that it sounds like you're disabusing me of is the idea that this is necessarily going to be tantamount to their future happiness. And would there be a case to be made that going to a less prestigious school could bear pretty much the same outcomes? Absolutely. So there's actually a lot of anecdotal on my part because I'm a big fan of anecdotal evidence. Not being a gifted math person, that often students, for example, who are pre-med, who go to quote-unquote less prestigious schools where they can really shine, end up doing much better in their medical school application process because medical schools don't give discounts for a 3.7 GPA obtained at University of Pennsylvania. They will take the 4.0 from University of Pennsylvania, and then they'll take the 4.0 from Cal State Northridge. And then they'll take the 4.0 from University of Indiana. And often those students will be more alive, more joyful, more appreciated by their professors, more likely to take advantage of co-curricular opportunities at those schools. I mean, that's one example that I've seen in terms of medical schools. But also, I think what the myth of Stanford and other schools is perpetuating is Essentially, we're passing down from generation to generation this incredible, I would say in some cases, class anxiety, the fear of falling from a comfortable suburban existence, which is a real fear. And to avoid that, a child has to go to a brand name school. The fact, though, is you could still be not living in a tent or a box under an overpass having gone to a four-year college where you've really thrived. So to me, this idea that parents are passing this anxiety onto their kids, what Frank Bruni in his book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, calls Yale or jail thinking, which is such a great (laughs) way of putting it. That anxiety is then passed on to their child because think about it, right? You graduate from Stanford, you get your high-paying job, you marry presumably another Stanford grad or another grad from a quote-unquote prestigious college. And now you have a new generation of children on whom the burden of your double Stanford legacy now hangs even more heavily. And one of the things we know for sure, and it actually comes from Stanford University, Carol Dweck's work, is that a fixed mindset of Yale or jail is a very narrow vision of life. And it actually has negative outcomes. And you're saying that just by going to an Ivy League school, you don't get a discount for going. I think that's such an important... I mean, I was laughing at the idea because I, of course, have thought that exact thing. And I'm so glad you've disabused me of that. And there are so many things I want to point out. One of the things that Sean Acor, who wrote The Happiness Advantage, you're nodding, talks about is the saddest group of people is 
the entering freshman class at Harvard because they're used to being the valedictorians, mm-hmm. the top in their class. And 49.9% of them are going to be sub-average and for the very first time in their life. And that is a very difficult thing with that fixed mindset of I'm either this or I'm nothing. Exactly. And all of that sacrifice, losing their youth just to get into that school, that might not actually be the best fit. So I'd love to talk with you about both fit as well as the big fish, little pond, little fish, big pond argument. I'm wondering what are your thoughts about fit and being a big fish in a little pond or vice versa? Gosh, so there's a (laughs) lot to be said about that. So let me grab the big fish, little fish question first, because there is, as I'm sure you know, a wonderful book by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath, which is about that very thing. Right. And in it, he has a case study of a student who chose to go to Brown because what kind of an idiot doesn't go to Brown over University of Maryland with a full ride. And she too had pre-med aspirations, which she now in retrospect considers she probably would have been able to fulfill had she stayed at UMD or had she gone to UMD. And at Brown, where she was competing against students who, as you said, were the valedictorians of their class, she ended up having to change her major. So I think that, and this brings up the question of fit, I think that fit is something that is obviously very much unique to the student. And I also want to just broaden the discussion a little bit to say that we're talking about college as though it were an inevitability It's not for all students or it shouldn't be for all students. And one of the things I get at in my book is our middle son, who was not an enthusiastic student, and that's putting it kindly, but who was and continues to be a lovely and affable person, just kind of went along with my husband's and my bulldozing insistence that, well, everybody goes to college. And so... He offered the path of least resistance and ended up getting into Cal State Chico into the honors program, which is actually a great program. And he thrived there for a hot minute, by which I mean about three or four weeks. And then he stopped going to class and mostly stayed in his room and played video games because it was a lot. You had to be self-motivated. You had to go see professors in office hours. You had to turn things in on time, all of which was really hard for him because There was not a lot of intrinsic motivation, and he also has pretty severe ADHD. So Chico was not very successful year for him, and now he is working full-time at Stanford Shopping Center and doing quite well for himself and really enjoys his job and has also expressed an interest in data science, which we are letting be its own thing because we have learned that lesson. But... College is not the answer for all students coming out of high school. Unfortunately, a lot of the schools in the Bay Area have that fixed mindset of, well, of course you graduate and you go to college. And that's directly correlated to there are not a lot of vocational or other college alternatives that are either offered or discussed because why would you do that if you go to Palo Alto High School or Menlo School or any of the fine institutions in this area. So that's statement number one. And then the other thing is fit, I feel like should not be that you are a teeny tiny fish in a pool full of barracudas, but nor should you be like that fish that gets, I can't remember who wrote the story, but it's a great children's story about a boy who is supposed to feed his 
pet fish only a pinch of the fish food. And he he grows toolless like the size of a whale, right? Exactly. And they have to squish him in a pool. And he's still too big for the pool. And so they have to like, I can't remember what they have to do to figure out how to get him back in the fishbowl. But I don't think you should be that. I don't think you should be (laughs) a whale in a fishbowl. But I also don't think it will feel good to be a guppy or a sardine surrounded by sharks or other carnivorous or pescatarian, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. My marine biology is a little bit off, but I don't know if it's, uh, sounds carnivorous, but yeah, it might be pescatarian. (laughs) They seem so brutal that they don't seem particularly pescatarian, which seems kind of chill. But as you were speaking, I found myself thinking about sex in the city and Carrie Bradshaw and how she'd put on these ill-fitting shoes because they were so beautiful and she could make it through the night in those shoes, but you're not going to make it for four years in those shoes. So I think that may even be another nice metaphor for that issue at hand. This has been a really weird year. I've heard anecdotes of people getting into highly prestigious institutions and not getting into some of the less prestigious institutions. Nothing seems to be right. At Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, there were 19,000 more applications than there were last year. Everything seems to be just totally unpredictable. And you as a college counselor are being entrusted to guide people, shepherd people through this vulnerable period. And you don't have all the answers because there's no way you don't have a crystal ball. But I'm wondering about this year and maybe how this portends for the future. It seems like the predictions that we used to be able to make, maybe we can't really make anymore. And I'm wondering if you just talk about like what's going on right now. Again, I don't have a crystal ball. So it's hard for me to make any kind of intelligent sounding prognostication. But I will say that I think what we're seeing is a natural outcome of the atmosphere of artificial scarcity that started in 1983 with the US News and World Report, which is where I point my accusatory finger when parents ask me, why is it so much more difficult to apply to college and to get in than when we applied in the late 80s, early 90s, whenever? And I think it's this idea that nobody gets into college, which is really localized to the top 20 schools on the U.S. News and World Report, because who wants to look beyond them? And the trickle down is that well, if I can't go into these schools, then I will en masse apply to whatever. And as little as probably seven or eight years ago, I could fairly confidently predict to a student that if they did not get into an Ivy League school, which are very difficult to predict, then at the very least, they would get into Berkeley or UCLA because those tend to be more transparent, merit-based admissions. This is no longer the case. I have had students get into Berkeley with a region scholarship and get waitlisted at UCLA. I've had students get into Ivy League schools and not get into the UCs. I've had students get into Brown, but not into, to your point, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. You know, and then of course it upends the whole thing because Cal Poly San Luis Obispo is a safety school except for when you don't get in, in which case it's not a safety school and Brown is a quote-unquote reach school, which ends up being a safety school when you are admitted. And so I think because of that and because of all the uncertainty, parents and students are really trying to game the system at the same time as colleges who have a vested interest in remaining at the top of the U.S. News and World Report 
are also gaming the system. And so one of the things that, and I don't know how closely you track single choice, (laughs) early action, all of those options, they are proliferating madly. So University of Chicago, which when I started this work, I think had something like a 33% admit rate and now has a 6% admit rate, largely because of their huge outreach about 10, 12 years ago to everybody, students that they knew had no chance of getting into UChicago because the more people apply, the more you have to turn down. The more you turn down, the more selective you are, the higher you go on the U.S. news and rankings, and it just keeps perpetuating itself. University of Chicago now has, and they're not alone in this, you can apply early action, which is non-binding. If you're admitted, you don't have to go. Hardly anybody ever gets admitted unrestricted early action. You can apply early decision, which is binding, and you have to go if you're admitted. I haven't seen that happen in a while either. Or in case that you are deferred out of early action or early decision, you can be invited to apply early decision too, which signals to University of Chicago that you are still deeply interested and you are essentially two of the three possibilities giving up your autonomy to choose other schools so that they can better manage their yield. Because for students who get admitted early decision, they know those students are coming. Students who are admitted early action, they don't know. Those students have free agency. Northeastern is now doing the same thing. It used to be early action or regular review. Now there are early action one, early action two, you could be deferred multiple times. So universities are being very savvy about managing who actually shows up, which gives them unprecedented opportunity to handpick who they want. And I think that's partly why everything is so weird because it's become game theory rather than an opportunity to take stock of who you are, what you bring to the table and where you would be better suited. And people, back to your question of fit, nobody is really asking anymore what's the right fit? They're asking, how do I get in? And what's the timing? And how can we best figure that out? Which are not really great questions. What are great questions? The great questions are probably, what would I like to do after I graduate from high school? What do I love to study? What are the kinds of things I would continue to do even if no one were looking? How do I feel about myself right now? Am I anxious and nervous and perhaps battling OCD or an eating disorder or anxiety and depression, which I have seen, I'm sure as you have, proliferate at epidemic proportions? Just basic well-being questions. How do I feel? How do I feel about the prospect of going to a school where now the stakes are really high. And that's one of the other downstream effects is people keep making fun of English majors, which I take very personally because I was an English major as an undergrad. But the fact is people aren't majoring in English, not necessarily because it's a bad or stupid major. It's actually very helpful for people who are interested in marketing or business or other actually quite lucrative fields. They're not going into it because if your parents are paying $88,000 full freight for four years of college, you better major in something practical and studying Shakespeare and Chaucer and Milton and contemporary American literature of the 1950s is not, to a lot of families' minds, a sensible thing to do. As I hear you speak, and as I've kind of geeked out to a bit of your story as a comparative literature major and one who 
carefully read the essays of people applying to Stanford. And what could differentiate us from AI is our ability to think. And I can't think of a better discipline than, say, English or literature. And everything you just dropped in terms of the questions you were asking would yield intrinsic related answers. They were not about the extrinsic, about the external, but they were about who am I, what do I love, and what is true rather than what am I going to get. And I think the what am I going to get is not a really great idea. Adam Grant talks about this and think again. He never asks a child, so what do you want to be when you grow up? He asks, what do you enjoy doing? And here you are as a poster child for standing up for what you love. Mm -hmm. And you've made a great career for yourself by following the love. And then I find myself going back to a few questions ago when you were talking about your son, who in my eyes is probably going to be a late bloomer. And one of the things that David Epstein writes about in the book Range is that late bloomers often bloom far better than early bloomers or so-called on-time bloomers. And it can be very flummoxing to be in a place like Silicon Valley where you can't throw a tennis ball without hitting somebody with an IQ above 130 and who's graduated with God knows what. And so being in the social milieu, a person can feel like I must be a part of this cookie cutter system. You, You do speak to that in your book. And it's so important for us and myself included. I have ADHD. I was a late bloomer. I didn't earn my doctorate until I was 40 and 41, something like that. And I bloomed. Interestingly, somebody with whom you went to high school and who was a friend of mine, when he found out what I was doing, said, wow, you got your dog. (laughs) He'd remembered me from way back when. I said, yeah, things have changed. You know, I kind of got interested in things. But I think one of the things you're speaking to is know thyself. And you even said that in another interview I heard where you were saying, like, as glib and hallmark as it sounds, be yourself. And that comes from knowing yourself. What are some good questions that perhaps a loving parent could ask their child to help them to shepherd their children towards knowing themselves better? I think not necessarily even questions, because as a parent of teenagers, you already know how profoundly unrewarding it can be to ask your children questions and be rewarded with it. No, no, or, you know, that's on a good day. Maybe sometimes they'll just sneer at you and walk through the kitchen like you didn't say anything. So I think just leaving room to let your children lead and maybe ask questions about what they're telling you or having open conversations about there was just a really great article in Inside Higher Ed from a professor of history, and I cannot remember at which university. But it was essentially about how important it is for students to understand their family history and to understand how their parents and their grandparents in many ways shaped what they are becoming or how it shaped their upbringing. And I think just maybe volunteering in your children's hearing, not necessarily sit down so I could tell you about how great grandma came here from Moldova. I don't think that would go over well. But just maybe talking about family stories and If the parents are immigrants, those are stories that are very interesting, I think, to a lot of students even or children, even if they're not directly involved. And I think just giving them the opportunity to be exposed to how different people in their family made their way forward and to 
not so much shepherd students, but to encourage that process of question asking, to encourage the process of curiosity. And I think one of the, and this was hard for me as an advice giving person, one of the most profound lessons I learned as a parent is how much more rewarding it is to be a parent when you talk less and listen more. Irina, this has been so much fun. This is the first time I have been totally intrigued by someone's writing on social media that caused me to reach out and say, I must interview this person. And I'm so grateful that you've written The Golden Ticket. What a great reference to Willy Wonka or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And what a great way to actually describe, in some ways, the randomness of where a child will go. And uh, your wisdom added to the collective intelligence of parents who are trying to deal with something so difficult is so, so important at this moment. And I'm just really grateful to you as a parent and as a mental health practitioner. This is just great. Well, thank you. This was wonderful. And I just will add my cautionary note about the golden ticket, which is obviously an ironic title. Four of the five children who enter the chocolate factory... (laughs) Would be far better off without the golden ticket. That's so on point. Yes, Augustus Blue became pretty, pretty chocolatey. I mean, all of them, Veruca Salt turned into a blueberry and somebody was abducted by squirrels. My thing ended up in a TV. It's a whole thing. Well, this has been just totally delightful. Thank you so much, Irina. Adam, thank you. This was great. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psych. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 